Welcome to Lorica, the podcast of Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. St. Patrick's is a parish in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, serving the Western Rite. Father Patrick is also the administrator of the Orthodox West. Our gospel lesson begins this morning. Now as he drew near. This is a reference of Jesus drawing near to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, one of the oldest cities in the world, once ruled by that enigmatic priest king Melchizedek, supposedly, back in Abraham's day. Eventually captured by King David from the Jebusites and made the kingdom of the capital, the kingdom of Judah, this is that holy city upon a hill where the temple was eventually built. This is the place of dwelling, of God's dwelling among his people. Jerusalem is known as the city of peace. It's a derivative of the name itself. In Melchizedek's day, it was called Salem. We might ask for being the city of peace, there sure was a lot of war and destruction and death associated with this city. From the Christian perspective, we know that it is through the very violent death of our Savior Jesus that peace with God is purchased for all mankind. And thus, we know the true meaning of this name of city of peace for Jerusalem. But for those who reject the Savior, it remains a city of judgment, a place really of horrific devastation, especially in its ultimate destruction in 70 AD. Well, Jesus approaches the city. Up until this time, he had pretty much spent his ministry in the countryside and small towns. For three years, he'd been preparing for this moment, this moment when he would go up to the city of peace. There he would confront the powers of darkness. He would cleanse the temple of its corruption so as to make a place for his own divine presence. And as the Lord approaches this ancient city in which there is so much history, this Christ figure, Melchizedek, had once ruled this very city in ancient, ancient times. As our Savior approaches Jerusalem, there is a very poignant moment in which we see the God-man expressing deep emotion over the suffering and devastation of those he created and loves so dearly. As he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Jesus stood there looking out over the city of Jerusalem, and he wept. He cried. And as he wept, he said, If you had known, even you, especially in this day, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. We may think also of that other famous incident where Jesus wept for his friend Lazarus, who had died. It's a very solemn thing to think of tears streaming down the face of God, 
as he shows deep emotional sadness for the suffering of those he loves. And it is emotion that Jesus feels and expresses. He is not just putting on for some object lesson, for some didactic purpose. No, he deeply feels sadness at our suffering, our suffering even though caused by our own sin and by the sins of others. You may or may not know that the question of how God can feel emotion and still be God, as we understand that word, this very question has been very important in the history of theology and Christian doctrine. Perhaps now in our own day it's more important than ever because there is a whole movement that challenges the orthodox understanding of this question of God's ability to feel emotion or not feel emotion. The classic orthodox doctrine is called impassibility. We say that God is impassible. It is the impassibility of God and teaches us that God, being God, is not subject to the passions. He's not subject to unrestrained feelings which sort of wash over him as a force and cause some change in him. He is immutable and he is impassable. Otherwise, he's just like one of us. He doesn't have emotions in the same way that we have emotions. Often our emotions, they come upon us violently, outside of our cognition and control. Sometimes they're a result even of physical stimulus, like adrenaline or something. God, of course, is bodiless, so he doesn't possess this. And yet, at the same time that God is not emotional in the way that we are emotional, he is not an unemotional robot or rock. God has emotions and feelings, whatever that means. <laughs> because when we start talking about these things, we must immediately recognize they are a great mystery and we really can't understand his emotions through our human lens. They're on a very infinitely different plane. And yet we must speak about it. We must say that God's impassibility does not mean that he is out of touch or that he is impassable. When we think about God as he is in himself, and we try to describe him, we try to come up with words to describe what and who God is in and of himself. We might say things like he is goodness. He is supernal being. He is true. He is what is real. We might say things like that. And then we come to say something very interesting. We say that he is beautiful. We speak of the beauty of holiness. Now, there's no reason for beauty. Any more than there is a reason for God. There's no reason for God. Otherwise, the reason would be God. And there's no reason for beauty. Beauty is not utilitarian or practical in any way. And yet, this is something 
we say about God as we are trying to express what and who he is at a very deep level. We turn to the word and the concept and the idea of beauty. As humans, we really can't come up with words and concepts to say anything about God at the deepest level, and yet we try anyway. We have to try. We have to speak. God is beautiful. And those things in God's creation which reflect God most perfectly, they too are beautiful. The idea of beauty is so deeply important to our understanding of God. And when we stop to think about it, the only purpose it serves, which is really no purpose at all, is to bring us delight. Beauty and delight. Which brings us to another word, another interesting word we use to describe God at a very deep level. It's another rather purposeless word, again. We believe that God is the fountain and fullness of joy. And over a flowing abundance of delight and joy. God is beauty and joy. I've been amazed by this since I was a young person. That God is simply beauty and joy. There's no explanation for this. There's no reason for it. You must understand that that is why you exist. This is why God made you. It is why he suffered such a violent death to return you to the possibility of fullness of joy. This is what and who God is in himself apart from our sad story. He is the fullness of beauty and joy. He is that abundant overflowing out into all eternity. And he made us for the simple purpose and reason that we might be sharers in his divine, eternal, beautiful joy. That's it. That's why you exist. And yet, here in our gospel lesson and in many places in the scriptures, God weeps. He weeps as he looks out over Jerusalem. And he feels the sorrow of our suffering and loss. Because of our own sin, our own forgetfulness of God, the same God who made us for joy. And yet this emotion does not sweep over God as an uncontrollable passion. And interestingly, in no way does his sorrow and sadness in this moment as he weeps, which is real, in no way does it dampen his essential joy. God in his tender loving compassion embraces and identifies with our suffering but he does it in a very willful, controlled and deliberate way. The sadness he feels on purpose through compassion 
has nothing to do with despair. And mysteriously, it never eclipses his joy. Many people have struggled with the conundrum of how God can enter our suffering and feel sorrow, and yet remain in perfect joy and impassable at the same time. What helps me when I think about this is to think about the lives of the saints. When we read their lives and we look at them and how they live, they exemplify this because they are close to God. They are like God. Oftentimes when I've taught in catechism or had conversations with people about the communion and intercession of the saints, a very common objection that comes up is, well, they're in heaven. They're there in heaven existing in perfect happiness. How is it that the saints could be bothered with our requests in all of our muck and filth and sadness and sorrow and despair? These things are mutually exclusive. They can't be bothered with us. They're in perfect happiness. These things are incompatible. And people raise this as an objection to our understanding of the saints' involvement in our lives and their intercession. But even in this world, when we see the lives of the saints, we see them weeping for the world with great feeling, great sadness, true sorrow and compassion, mourning, grief even. And yet, at the same time, Whenever we look at the saints, they always seem to be filled with some underlying hope and joy. While they embrace the suffering of the world, at the same time, they somehow seem to soar above despair and hopelessness. They are not aloof in their joy, and yet neither are they overcome with the despair of this world. Now, I do not have an answer for you this morning as to how this can be. At least not one that I could even begin to approach on a Sunday morning sermon. Other than to say, this is who and what our God is. He is the one who has entered our suffering, who mourns with us, who has chosen to feel sadness, to embrace our sadness, and make it his own, and yet at the same time, this in no way diminishes his eternal joy. It in no way results in one hint of despair in God. How can we live this way? Well, if we are close to God, if we are filled with his spirit, if we are filled with the knowledge and faith that Christ is risen, I don't know how we could live any other way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. This has been a production of the Orthodox West.